Fed up with the fact checkers constantly labeling all of your posts as misinformation, missing context, or just straight up false when you know for a fact that it's not? Well, come check me out. I'm Justin over at the Fact Check This Podcast. I cover all of the shit that the fact checkers get wrong, plus general topics of the day and a whole bunch of other fun stuff. So come check it out. Fact Check This Podcast. You won't be disappointed. Tower, taking a stand for your rights, your liberties, and all the bullshit in between. You're listening to Break the Bell Podcast. All right, ladies and gentlemen, find your seats and welcome to the live edition of the Break the Bell Podcast. Hello, beautiful bell breakers. How is everybody doing out there? Let me get everything straight that I need to get straight because... As always, I'm not on top of shit, but that's all right. I think it's because you were early again. Yeah, and whenever yeah. I'm early, it just throws you all it off. It always throws yeah. everything off for me. It's so much better when I come in at the last second. It is. It's just like, Bill, sit down, because I got everything ready. <laughs> yeah, but then exactly. when you show up early, it's just like, oh, Bill's here, and then I forget everything I need to do. Right. Yeah. So I think we're straight. We're squared away. How's everybody doing out there? It is another week, another yeah. fun, what is this, the second what? week of January? Second week of 2022. And been full of surprises yet you think uh no no not yet aside from bob saget dying obviously yeah we're still waiting for the results coming on that one i mean that was sad but it is what it is i guess it is it's gonna happen hopefully that's the worst thing that happens in 2022 don't say that i'm just saying i hope i'm saying i hope all right yeah 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 it it, it could be worse Once again, as always, our show is brought to you by Run Your Mouth Coffee, the official coffee of our show and the official coffee of free speech. Make sure yes. you check them out. Make sure you you said today that you are shifting to full blown coffee snob. I am. Yes. Yeah. yeah. How so? Uh, well, I, I had I got a grinder for Christmas. All right. So I had these nice beans I had gotten from my gentleman's club. Not that kind of gentleman's club. <laughs> what kind of gentleman's club are we? It's great because they bring you coffee. No. Um, and then I grinded all the beans up and I put it in a coffee press and I, I did it legit. And then I, I, I drank that so I would be ready for the show tonight. All right. So you're all amped up and ready to go? I am. I am. Everybody should be drinking coffee because coffee is the official drink of America, it I would is. say. Yes. I would say. It's the official drink of freedom. Yes. And... What a, what a better way to uh, support freedom than by buying delicious coffee that also supports freedom. Support, exactly. you, support your right to free speech. Support your right to be able to sit here and do a ridiculous podcast where you just bullshit for a couple hours. Yes. And people listen to you, and we get fun, cool guests on, and we yes. get to uh, exercise our First Amendment rights to free speech and run your mouth coffee Fully supports your absolutely your First Amendment right to run your mouth. 
go free to, speech and coffee. Exactly. You can't go. You, it doesn't you get much better than that. Not at all. Go to RYM Coffee. Tell them we sent you by using that promo code, Break the Bell, and you will get 10% off your, your purchase, a 10% discount. I mean, that's that's pretty damn good deal. And so, so the more you buy... The better the discount. That's how that work. Yes. That math adds and, up. And by getting a discount, you're more free. Yes, obviously, <laughs> you're free to get a discount. RYMCoffee.com. That's all. Check them out because it's delicious. Fresh coffee, fresh roasted coffee delivered straight to your door. You don't have to go to the supermarket. You don't have to go to Starbucks or Dunkin' or whatever shit no. shithole place you no. have in your town. No. It's delivered fr- straight to your door. You can grind it up in your fancy grinder and press yes. it in your fancy uh, coffee snob press and. Yeah. The world will be better for it. Yeah. I I feel a little bit more hipster today. I feel like next (laughs) week I'm going to come in with a man bun. All right. Perfect. Uh, We got some comments rolling in already. Shannon says, hey, homies, I'm stopping by. Shannon, it is once again great to have you on the show. Um, Hopefully you can stick around for a little bit. Today we got a special show for you. We've got a special guest. Um, I stumbled on him by accident. His name is Matt Belinsky. He's the host of the Prevailing Narrative podcast. A show I'd never heard of before. I just happened to be listening to local radio, which I don't do very often. Yeah. I do it on the way to work. That's it. Okay. That's the only time I usually turn it because I haven't had a chance. I'm not awake enough to throw the earbuds in right. and turn anything on, so I'll just click on the local radio. Yeah. And I happened to stumble across this ad for the prevailing nice. narrative this podcast. Like, uh, NPR you turned on or uh, uh, it was uh it was an iHeartRadio station. Oh, okay. So um I think he was advertising on iHeartRadio. So Very that's cool. that's how I I mean I I listened to like 10 minutes of his show and then after that I was hooked and I was like I got to get this guy on my show. Um his show is pretty straightforward like he holds nothing back. He's he's pretty blunt when it, when he talks about any conversation. Um I've listened to I think four of his five episodes and Very cool. he doesn't he doesn't hold back on on stuff. He's very straight to the point and logical. And that mm-hmm. that's a rare thing to find these days is somebody that can be that can discuss some of these world topics, these think this bullshit that's going on in the country and present it in a logical manner because right. everything's just based around emotions these days. So I agree. It's nice. If you if you can present it in logical format, man, yeah. that that's you get kudos in my book for that, I guess. Yeah. So uh, this first half we're going to get to spend with Matt Belinsky. We're going to get him on in just a couple of minutes. Um, and then after that, I guess we're just going to continue the conversation into the second half. So okay. I want to roll through this intro really fast so we can get him on and get as much time out of him as we can before he has to go. Uh, so I guess before we get into this intro video... Don't forget to share us, like us, subscribe all over the social medias. Uh, that's how we get our name out there. That's how we can become bigger and better and do more things and uh, convince more people to come on our show, I guess, and make this the big thing we want it to be. Absolutely. So anything else before we get into this intro? No, let's do it. All right, we're going to roll with this intro, and when we come back, we will be live with Matt Belinsky of the Prevailing Narrative Podcast. We'll be right back. What did you say? <laughs> You talking to me? What what the heck are you talking about? What did you say? What did you say? What did you say? Are you talking to me? Are you talking to me? Are you talking to me? What are you talking about? What are you talking about? What are you saying? What did you say? Are you talking to me? Well, maybe he was talking to me. 
I promised we are here live with his show is self-described as a, a lively and fiercely analytical breakdown of the news and current events with interviews of thought leaders, experts, and innovators. Please welcome to the show the host of the Prevailing Narrative podcast, Matt Belinsky. Matt, let me get you pulled up. How's it going, Matt? Going well, guys. Thanks for having me. Good. Can you hear us okay? Yep. All right. Perfect. I'm going to get rid of this music because it's going to distract me. So, Matt, I, I, I literally know really nothing else about you besides the fact that you are the host of the Prevailing Narrative podcast. As I was telling Bill and, and everybody before in, in the pre-show, I had heard about your show through a um, a local radio ad on – in our an iHeart radio station i'm pretty sure Can I just ask you, where, where are you located which market is this uh we're in cedar rapids iowa okay love love that interesting to see which uh which markets iHeart is uh is putting their ad dollars towards yeah and, and usually it's like uh the super mainstream podcast that i hear them promoting like uh the ron burgundy podcast and and stuff like that that mm. we all like uh throw fits that all these these mainstream people are taking over the podcast market. So it was nice to hear actually a real podcast on being advertised as a podcast on the iHeart Network. So um, as I was saying, I, I hadn't heard of you and your ad came out and it basically said what I said there in the in intro that you, you logically break down the sides of, of the narratives because there's all this shit being thrown at us back and forth with, with, different narratives when it comes to COVID or whatever else that's going on. And you come at it from a logical standpoint and try to decide, you know, like who, who's a credible source here. And I gotta, mm -hmm. I gotta be honest with you before I went and listened to you. The only reason I went and listened to you is because since it was advertised on mainstream radio, I was skeptical, and I was like, oh, I want to see what he is deeming this as credible. Is he pushing, like, the actual mainstream narrative of all this emotional, like, tailor to your emotions and stuff? And so I went looking for you as a skeptic, and then within, like, 10 minutes, I was, I was pretty damn hooked. And that's—I I don't even think I made it through a whole episode before I reached out. I was like, hey, dude, I got to get you on my show. Awesome, man. I really appreciate that. Um yeah, I, and I understand that and hearing it from a mainstream source like iHeart, but that's, that's listen, I'm here in Los Angeles and I'm in my, before, I only started this podcast about six weeks ago um, and I'm involved in media, you know, in my other facets of my career, which is I'm a lawyer first and foremost, and then I'm involved in the startup world and I've worked with digital media companies as an advisor and that type of stuff. So I think it is indicative that a lot of mainstream media companies are acknowledging that there's a really unfed 
appetite and a market inefficiency for some more logical straight talk that doesn't get coded as obviously as contrarian right wing Fox News, Breitbart, etc., mm-hmm. but still deviates from what is being put out there by the, the corporate legacy media. And I think, I, listen, I, I'm not speculating even. You can even talk to the agencies. You can talk to the art people. And like, yeah, we know that this is, there's a massive market inefficiency where that's not being served. Right. Absolutely. Um, tell us a little bit about you. Tell us a little bit about your show. I mean, you said mm-hmm. that you, a lawyer by background, but now you have the show. But I, I assume that this isn't your first uh, <laughs> this isn't your first deal out on in uh, making content. Um, I've seen you on other. I I did a quick <laughs> Google search and found you on other people's podcasts. And your show's fairly fairly new. I only saw what four or five episodes that are out right now. So mm. tell me a little bit about yourself, about your show, how you got started, and all that stuff. Yeah, so I'm an attorney here in Los Angeles. I wouldn't really say entertainment attorney. A little more like media start, digital media startups, things like that. Um, and like I said, I have a hand on the business side. Um, always been pretty outspoken on social media, and, but I've never really did it formally because I never really had, let's call it a niche. I never, it, I seemed like, you know, very much a generalist. And if you talked with people, you know, in the media world or who are advising people like representatives, producers, whatnot, up until recently, you said that their, their input would be, yeah, it's really tough to be a generalist. Like Rogan was able to do it because he started so early and because he was already kind of famous. Mm-hmm. Um, but then... Uh, but I was always a lot of my shtick on social media, highly critical of the media. Um, hey, the, the mainstream sources, these are, this is not your father's CNN, the dig, you know, newspapers, if they, as they've shifted to digital, they no longer, um, they no longer solve for accuracy and journalistic ethics. They solve for shareability and clickbait. And even a lot of the news sources that you think that you deem, uh, uh rever- that are uh, reverential they're doing the same bullshit that all the other clickbait factories are that was a lot what i was putting out on social media um and it got a bit of an audience and i, I had a, a pretty big following here in la but then around the beginning of the pandemic i started applying that to a lot of the pandemic news the news around covid its alleged origins and i went uh, you know semi-viral i had a handful of big, uh, posts that that really started picking up some steam um, I mean, Instagram was my primary platform. I mean, since the beginning of the pandemic, I think my, my uh, increased my followership about 800%. Oh, wow. um, and my engagement is very high. And that's how it went. Yes, March, April, May 2020. I was on my phone roughly 18 hours a day, breaking down news, responding to people as everybody was kind of lost. I was like, listen, guys, you know, I, I, I guess I have the forensic skills of knowing when a, a, a headline is bullshit mm. or how they're manipulating this headline where the headline doesn't meet, doesn't match the information in the story, things of that nature. And that got me, you know, uh, 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 that that's kind of how I accelerated myself as a content creator and why, you know, certain people started having me on their podcasts. I did a bit of an interview series that was on Instagram live at the time um, that did very well, but that, you know, Instagram such a closed garden. So I knew I had to take it off platform um, and do my own thing and it took me a little longer to get that going than I was anticipating, but finally did uh, end of, of last year um, and launched the pod about six weeks ago. Nice. Very nice. Very nice. Um, so, so podcasting on its own is relatively new. You've dabbled in this stuff, but you just decided to push that into the podcasting world. And have, have you got good reception from that transition into the podcast? Did a lot of yeah. those that following follow you into the podcast world? 
Yeah, it's been it's been good. So very good. The input's been very good so far. Obviously, I know there's a, a, a lot of room for improvement, uh, uh, both in terms of show structure, my delivery, um, how, you know, I think I've got some pretty good guests so far and I've got some good ones lined up, but I have a long list of potentially amazing guests. And obviously, the more of those chats that a per, that a podcaster books, you know, that that increase, that's just the, those are the building blocks for right. for great content, right? Um, and uh, and you know, listen, there's uh, I, what I like so far on my Apple reviews. All the you know, almost all the reviews are either four stars or one star, which is I'd prefer it that way. I don't yeah. need anyone who's in the middle. Right. If you're bullshit or you don't like the content, great. It's supposed to be. I'm not just there to be a provocateur and to piss people off, but um, I'm not sparing anyone's feelings. So. Uh, I'm not shocked that it's uh, people are either really into it or really not into it. And I feel that is very important when it comes to doing something like this. Like if you are going to dedicate time and the effort it takes to do a show and you're truly passionate about what you're talking about, you got to care a little less about people's feelings and just give it to them straight. Yeah. And when we started out, we kind of danced around people's feelings a little more. And then as things progressed, we we're both just like, you know, we got to stop kind of tiptoeing around this and just st say it straightforward because it's what we think. It's our show, and why even have a show for just going to uh, tiptoe around people's feelings? And when what we're truly this is something we're truly passionate about, the, the, the things we're talking about. So we need to put it out in that that way. And we have found that we either get fives or ones too. On and and the funny thing is, the people that leave ones never leave a comment. Mm -hmm. It's just like, um, so what are you leaving a one about? Because I would like to know, like, I, I'll take criticism on both sides, but I, we always get the good comments. But then um, on the other side, people are just like, nope, just one. We're just going to leave from here. Uh, do you experience that or do people actually let yeah, you know? No, some, how they people are leaving, some people are leaving comments, but I mean, they're all pretty much the same. Oh, another dude, bro, who doesn't like woke shit. Well, yeah, I'm sorry. Like, mm -hmm. uh, that's part of what I'm commenting on. This is the new dominant cultural ethos of the governing class with essentially invaded every institution. I'm going to be talking about it a lot and being highly critical of it. And if you're if you uh, find anyone who focuses on that, to not be a valuable voice, then great, you're not gonna find me a, a valuable voice. But I, sure. part of my, my basic thesis is that people have been trying to excuse this or minimize this, this little cultural revolution and just brush it aside as something that's either an annoyance, a minor nuisance, or something that just is fringe or five years ago, nobody even has the, the chutzpah to try to make this excuse anymore. Oh, it's just a bunch of college kids on college campuses. No, no, this is now the governing uh, dominant ethos of American culture right now. And to the extent it's not, uh, every institution, whether corporate America, media, education, whoever's running it is trying to jam it in there. So right. it needs to be, if you wanna talk about uh, um, what's going on in America right now, you need to talk about this. So if people want to keep on blinding themselves to that, then great. I, I, I welcome their criticism. So uh, kind of in line, I guess, with the woke bullshit or whatever it is uh, that people are, are calling it these days, um, the thing that drew me into your show, your first episode, was uh, you, you touched a bit on this concept of uh, victimhood inflation. And, and you were referring to the Jesse Smollett trial at the time, because this was mid-December when he was, yeah. I, I think it was right after he was found guilty or whatever. And um, you were discussing uh, 
this concept of victim inflation or victimhood inflation currency. And this is something I don't ever hear anybody talk about because people aren't allowed to talk about this. People aren't allowed to uh, criticize the people that throw up the victim card and, and things like that. And so that caught my interest the most was that discussion. And that's kind of a little bit what I want to dig into uh, to start sure. out with because I found it incredibly interesting and nobody else wants to talk about it. So uh, can you can you just tell us a little bit about what that is and um, I guess yeah. just take it away? Because I, I, like I said, I haven't heard much about it and you can't find much about it. So um, I'll just let you have the floor with that one. Sure. So historically, and this wasn't universal, but in measuring integrity or character, what admirable qualities were, and to a certain extent, it, we, we were talked and it was a, a basic principle of American society or how you raise your kids or whatever, that it, it's a sign of integrity and growth for to not be offended, to not be bothered by something, to be resist, you know, resilient and persistent and not try to always uh, uh, show, you know, ha show what your failings are or who did you wrong, right? I mean, obviously we strayed from that. It was different in 1962 than it was in 1989, that it was different in 2005. Um, however, in this recent period, you know, someone, I mean, I think most aptly described as the great awakening by Matt Iglesias, who for a while is sometimes one of the villains here, but then also every once in a while shows himself to be pretty knowledgeable and, and aware of what's going on. Um, and that what happened is now the way that you gain currency in society or become elevated or, or, or achieve additional stature um, uh, or maybe not necessarily, uh, you know, ec economic benefits, but definitely stature and status is to portray yourself as the victim is to organize society based on who's the most oppressed who's been done wrong to instead of looking for reasons not to be offended to find reasons to be offended to find reasons to show that you've been the victim of some you know generally identity-based uh, crime or or hate or this or this or that and look at, look at what the reaction is anytime you kind of state your experiences um, or what where you've been victimized, then there's supposed to be this uh, uh, outpouring of support, of sympathy, and that's how you kind of leverage yourself up the social ladder. I mean, it kind of goes back a little bit to the notion of intersectionality, which is, I guess, the intellectual framework for this particularly vile new era that we exist in right now, where everyone, where, ev where people are not, uh, we, we don't prioritize individual rights. Everything is looked at in terms of group rights, mm -hmm. uh, demographic classification, and the supposed power dynamics between a person based on your, that that uh, the that every interaction is, is essentially a power struggle and that the scorecard is determined based on your identity category, your race, uh, your sexual uh, uh, preferences, your gender, um, and things of that nature. And the the top of this intellectual uh, intersectional spectrum is the most victimized and it, then down you you kind of analyze those factors to determine who's the most victimized or oppressed in every in every interaction and don't take my word for it on this or think that i'm kind of um uh, uh, kind of you know out in orbit right now go look into intersectionality this is very proudly what its basic tenets are and a lot of people go you see kristen gillibrand the senator from new york advocating for intersectionality like look how many politicians and and uh uh and you know other authority figures promote this stuff 
And so now we're living in that era, the era of intersectionality. And that's why you see a lot of hate crime hoaxes like Jesse Smollett, because you get more benefit, you get more social currency from showing yourself to be a victim. If a do, you know, if it had a, a dollar of buying power 20 years ago, it has $10 of buying power. You know, well, that's the opposite of inflation, but I you get the, the point that right. we've inflated the value and the cost or, or the, the, the value of being portraying oneself as a victim. And I think that is that explains a lot of the nonsense that we're seeing right now. Matt, um, you see that a lot with uh, celebrities nowadays. You know, they they're coming out with, you know, yeah, I, I you know, I, I'm bi or you know, I, I'm gender fluid. And recently, you saw it with Elvira. You know, the the horror queen. You know, she came out and was like, yeah, I've been in a relationship with a woman for the last twenty years. And then she came out and said, you know, she's been getting a lot of hate mail from all the men who feel like she's lied to them for the last thirty years. You know, and so it, it's interesting that that's just a trend that's kind of been per perpetuated through Hollywood right. and how it's just kind of grown through the culture at that point. Yeah, it's almost like if you're a celebrity in Hollywood, you have to be something in order to gain right. attention anymore. Oh, yeah, yeah. You, you, you're, you're showing yourself to have an abnormality, right, or what was historically considered an abnormality, then puts you in a more of a protected class, right? right? Just not being in that protected class, does it's, it's that inflation. It, it, Yes, there to a certain extent, putting yourself, you know, labeling yourself in a protected class in a variety, in a few different aspects of society would get you some minimal benefit here and there through the 80s, 90s, 2000s, right? But I think a lot of people uh, exaggerated how much people were abusing that mm -hmm. in this recent era. Let's call it 2012, 13, 14 to now. I and it's it's being abused nonstop. And kind of the more you can categorize yourself, the better. And that's what they're all all grabbing for. And I mean, mm -hmm. some of these older, you know, Elvira. Okay, she she her her career and her market value as a celebrity, it was not really impacted by that. But right. then you look at the younger celebrities. I mean, the the biggest uh, 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 culprit here is Demi Lovato. I right. mean, every two days Demi Lovato comes out with some new uh, clinical you know malady that she has about she's non-binary or she's shaving a freaking head or she's a, a tortoise or God knows what it's <laughs> all there to, you know, that, that now we are just celebrating every pathology because she wants more support. And also, um, because if you fit in one of these categories, it's supposed to insulate you, you against criticism, mm -hmm. right? If you're just, if Demi Lovato is just a healthy, pretty, all-American, Caucasian female with billions, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, then, ooh, she can be criticized. Right. But once she places herself in one of these categories, all of a sudden she's supposed to become immune to more criticism. And that's really one of the driving factors here. Mm -hmm. Well, what does that, I mean, what does that do to the overall, the overall mental health of the younger generation these days when they're, they're constantly terrible. seeing that? Absolutely. Yeah, because you're encouraging people to find to reach for explanations why uh, uh, for all types of normal, you know, normal human experiences. Uh, sorry, not everyone feels great all the time. Like these are just within the, the normal variety of the human experience to have some despair or sadness or feel unsure of yourself or confusion or this or that. And what this movement does is encourage them or suggest that every time they have one of these problems that, oh, the explanation is that I am A, B, C, or D. I am this thing, right? And if I then can just diagnose that that's what I am, then I can solve my problem. So maybe your problem is just that you're a normal 
teenager going through some changes and some hardships and you're going to grow out of it. That can no longer be the experience, unfortunately. And driving all of our, you know, a lot of our young people towards these clinic phony clinicalized explanations is not doing them. It's doing them a disservice. Right. Uh, Let's let's stay on this topic, but shift a little. Um, Talking about this whole uh, victimhood mentality, um, you kind of see it being used and abused to persuade the public's opinion or the public like actually like grasp onto the public's emotions because i i was talking about at the beginning how um people seem to more more reactive to emotions than logic and and that's what i liked about your show is that you came at it from a logical standpoint but um Mm -hmm. we just passed the uh the one-year anniversary of the january 6th incident i'm not going to get into all that shit because (laughs) we've talked about it enough on here but um Mm -hmm. Uh, looking back on that, there was uh, Alexandria Casio Cortez came out with her spiel about how she was a victim of assault previously, and this just brought back all these this th- this January sixth incident brought back all this flood of emotions. Do you think she had? Do you think that was right for her to come out and and compare the two and use that to play on people's emotions to spark some kind of emotional reaction to this? No, of course, it's craven and disingenuous and, and manipulative. But you know, here's every, some people who are critical of AOC say she's stupid. No, she's not. She's very smart. She's a smart manipulator. She knows what she's doing. Um, and she might not be good enough at it to fool 100% of the people, but she's good at enough at it to fool a number of people. Um, uh, do, uh, do you guys read Michael Tracy? You know, uh, I have not yet. I heard you talking about him. I was going to go look for him this week. He, he describes a lot of these dynamics very well. He even wrote a piece about this specifically. It's called How AOC Emotionally Manipulated the Entire Democratic Party to Do a Bidding. And it's about these mm-hmm. tactics that when you can, trauma, trauma, right? They all refer right. to trauma. If you, you can use trauma to excuse anything, right? And in the context of this January 6th thing, that it gives them some license they think it at least it gets gives them some license to really show themselves to be a victim of a traumatic event right mm-hmm. and if i'm a victim of a traumatic event then one you can't criticize me about anything having to do with it and i get to uh, i then get anything any any policy or reaction or response that i think is justified you no longer have you cannot question it because i was the victim and i i was a subject to this trauma and that's what she's doing. Yeah, the the whole the whole situation around that was she gave her narrative of how she, how terrified she felt in a separate building, completely isolated from the actual event, and people started calling bullshit on that, and so they started calling out for the uh, stigmatization of of trauma survivors. And in this interview, uh, I I can't even remember who the interviewer was, but he brought up or. I think she came out for the first time and publicly mentioned that she was a trauma survivor in the past or a, a, an assault survivor in the past. And so he brought this up. And so they, they tied this together to basically say, oh, you can't question her feelings right. or, or her statements on this incident because she's a previous trauma survivor. So they, they tied the two together so you couldn't hold her statements accountable because that would be – trauma stigmatization Mm -hmm. yeah so in the legal world we have it's a pretty widespread notion with the notion of the reasonable person 
And in judging a lot in, in determining law or legal analysis, you have you know, a lot of law, these laws are based on what a reasonable person would have thought, felt, anticipated, whatnot, right? So right. it's not an exact science. You're trying to in interpret within a range of, of emotions and experiences. But there's supposed to be an objective assessment of what is reasonable, because if not, then you just have chaos and mayhem. Mm -hmm. And so what they've done is try to detach from that, that there's no objective assessment, that there's no objective basis to determine or judge whether or not something is reasonable. And that's very dangerous. And these people are taking advantage of it because they say you have my fear or my hurt or my trauma or my pain or whatever is reasonable regardless there's you cannot challenge its reasonableness i felt it thus it is reasonable okay mm -hmm. once again you know someone kicked you in the shins and you thought that that you're like they were gonna they were gonna kill you and your family well i thought so i that that was a that was a, a subjective fear that was my personal experience so you don't get to determine you uh, you cannot cast judgment on whether or not that was objectively reasonable or unreasonable and that's what she's doing it, it, it's interesting because um, it, an analogy of this, I guess, is they say like the number one uh, most used device to launder money is is artwork because you can't put a price tag on artwork. So you could basically say whatever value you want on it. Well, you can't put a value on somebody's trauma so they can basically use that. And, and you're calling this um victimhood currency or whatever they, they can use that to whatever extent they want because you can't put a value on you can't say how much they're traumatized for by something um unless unless it is so blatantly obvious like the jesse smollett thing that this is complete fabrication and completely bullshit yeah, on the you, facts themselves yes yeah unless you can factually prove that this never happened right. then you you can't say tell somebody come at them and be like well did you actually feel that because i mean there are vic i i'm not one to say there's not victims out there of real trauma. There's real sure. trauma victims out there. Yeah. But what this does when, when you get the Ju Jussie Smollett's out there that are faking trauma, or you get the AOCs out there that are using that as an advantage in a political situation, then that just kind of waters down mm -hmm. the stories of the actual trauma victims. And then it, it's kind of like crying wolf. It's like right. once you water down that so much, people are... I mean, it's just going to go. Sure. And that's all. I mean, I think, uh, you know, I look at it. I don't look at it not that way, but I add one element to it. So a lot of people say, yes, this makes it tougher for the actual victim. Right. And that's true. But regardless of how what the impact is on the actual victims, taking that as aside for a second, this just scrambles society. It just tears at the fabric of society a little bit more. And it makes society overall a little less well-grounded and rational. Right. Right. It's like that's, that's the second impact. And I mean, because all so much there's some of the holdouts who still kind of, you know, wonder why I, I um, find certain things so insufferable or, or you know, egregious. Say, like, oh, well, how's it impacting you? It impacts us all to live in a just society based on reason and sound principles. And the more right. we stray from that, to pretend that that doesn't hurt everybody is just ridiculous. Yeah, if you're taking advantage of the system, if you're trying to manipulate an overly broad and an absurdly overly broad definition of trauma or victimhood or, or, you know, or try to bully someone into apology or get them on their heels just on kind of phony phony missives and and uh, appeals to victimhood like you're fucking like you're making society a little bit worse right and look right. what happens when that happens over and over and over and over that's what's happening these days 
it, it, just the aggregate impact of that is driving everybody crazy. Right. Right. And, and some of the stuff you talked about on this, uh, on, on your first episode of your show was, mm-hmm. uh, how we we no longer judge people based on their accomplishments. We are judging them based on their victim status or or whatever. Like no longer do we hold people to a certain status because of what they've done anymore. And I found that interesting. And I mean, I wouldn't say this is necessarily the same thing, but you see it on like mainstream TV shows, like the the uh, um, reality shows and things like that. My my wife and daughter like to watch clips of the X Factor, which is mm-hmm. one of those like talent yeah. shows. And every time they're like, hey, watch this. This is so sad. And it's always like somebody with this super traumatizing backstory or they have some serious disability or something. And they get up and they sing like four or five notes and they immediately hit the golden buzzer. And they're right. like, oh, the, this person's in. It's like. Are they in based on their talents or based on their backstory? Because right. it's always the person with the the worst backstory that gets that golden buzzer in in advances so that just kind of perpetuates what you're saying here that Mm -hmm. um if you're a victim you're held to like a higher status than Mm -hmm. than anybody else you you have this kind of virtue status that's higher than everybody else yeah and everybody else wants to ascertain and elevate their virtue by kissing your ass yeah right right simone biles like you know, some people went too hard after Simone Biles. Like, no, she's not a coward. She's an amazing athlete who's got a lot of accomplishments. But she had a bad day at the Olympics. It mm-hmm. wasn't a day to celebrate. It right. wasn't a big accomplishment of hers. Just why can't we call it what it is? Like, hey, great athlete had a bad day. Right. Instead of having to pretend that this is this amazing thing. And she's so stunning and brave for, yeah. you know, watching, you know, and having to tap out on her ball. Like, yeah. You know, I mean, yeah, she did go through some serious shit mm-hmm. uh, with with all these uh, uh, abuse from the the medical doctor or whatever, the team yeah. medical guy. I I understand that that happened, and it's horrible that she had to endure that. But that doesn't make what she did in the Olympics well, any better. No, but it, and also it's when it, it, it suddenly was triggered by the fact that she had a really bad performance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. it just yeah. happens to come out, oh, oh I, I did this because of this. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I, I just, I, I find it crazy. And the fact that we're even talking about this is the crazy part because, again, oh, yeah. <laughs> again I, I mean, people are going, we're going to get probably quite a bit. Have, have you got shit because of that first episode based on that first? So um, a lot of people, particularly because I'm in Los Angeles, which, you know, reflects a different set of values. A lot of people kind of, ex- there are definitely some people around town who don't like me, whatever, mm. I'm for sure. But a lot of people anticipate that I get way more hate and and pushback than i do and the truth is and man my dms every more people feel like this more people agree with us they just don't feel comfortable saying it Mm -hmm. and that's the dangerous part right now it's not healthy to be in a society where this many people feel one way that's very reasonable and don't feel comfortable expressing that Mm -hmm. and i mean a lot of people say you know hey have you lost friends or this or that since you've been more vocal i mean not really. And the friends I've lost have been ones that I got rid of because I think they're full of shit. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, uh, and so I don't, you know, you might get, a, you might, a year, last summer I was getting some hate here and there, but I was getting way more support. Mm-hmm. And even from a lot of people who may, you might not have expected that I would get support from. Um, 
I, I think that, you know, people are really, they're mispricing it. They're mispricing, you know, this whole, this whole market, right. In terms of not understanding how many people feel a certain way or just not, not expressing mm-hmm. it publicly. And I, I can tell you, I mean, since the the rise of the pandemic or whatever, I've seen so many people change or, or do flip a 180 when they see people being silenced, when they see information being, you know, censored or taken off social media simply because it doesn't follow the narrative. Right. And so it's it's been a real awakening from what I've seen. Um, and mm-hmm. it's pretty amazing. I, I, yeah. I yeah. Would, I mean, oh, sorry. Continue. No, go ahead. Go ahead. There is that segment of people whose brains have been broken. Mm-hmm. Um, they did not react. There was a shocking, I don't want to call it say traumatic. There was a shocking event, you know, regardless of it was definitely, this was the most significant event in modern history, whether regardless of which really a person thinks it should have been, it is. And a lot of people's, their, their internal equilibrium just couldn't stand that. And it got scrambled. And so they haven't been thinking straight in some regards. Some of those people are in high risk categories and they're not thinking about what life is like for everybody else. Similarly, some people who aren't in high risk categories might not like myself might not be as sensitive and attuned to the lives of people who do, you know, have a little more concern, a tangible concern about COVID. Um, But I think people, there was really a fork in the road. People either, I definitely, I know a lot of people who woke up, a lot of people I know, you know, even mentioned like Matt, I thought clickbait was kind of bullshit, but then you explain it. You're like, this is how, this is how they're manipulating this headline. And this is why this is bullshit. And I'm like, that's fantastic. It's like, good that you, good that you're recognizing that. Mm-hmm. And some other people just gave into the neuroses and they they can't think straight. And on the one, I'm, on, on a case by case basis, I try to determine, are you just lazy and uninformed or is your neuroses blocking out the truth? Right. Because some people just haven't done what I try to do and what, what I would imagine is why you, you your impression of me was as logical as I try to break it down past that first line of analysis. Mm-hmm. Like, OK, what about this counter? Some people just don't. I'm trying to determine is a person incapable of doing that or are they some simply unwilling to because they're they they're, they want to keep on telling themselves the preferred narrative. Yeah. I found this interesting article when I was preparing for the show. And there was a study that says the trait victimhood, the two traits, victimhood and mental rigidity are linked to a heightened fear of COVID-19 and a greater adherence to the safety measures that are placed before them. I was just going to say that. And so it's really interesting that they actually connected the dots for me because I want to talk a little bit about both this whole um, victimhood mentality and then also move in a little bit into people losing their fucking minds over this COVID-19 shit, uh, not following logic whatsoever, just following like purely on their emotions. And then this study actually put the two together saying people that actually fall more in line with that trait of victimhood status or people that have like such a like one side in mental rigidity, which obviously those people are going to just follow whichever side they're already, whichever camp they're already parked in, they're going to follow that side. But then also the the people with a victimhood status, they tend to uh, fear more the COVID-19 and blindly follow some of these uh, COVID protocols that are set before them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they, the victimhood mentality, if there's no threat to counter, then it, 
then what are they doing with it? They, they don't gravitate. They don't feel stimulated by it, it, just normal life. Uh, hey, mm -hmm. everything's fine and I'm going to go about my business. That doesn't get the wind in their sails. There's a threat and we need to hunker down and we're in this together and I need some sort of sympathy or solidarity based on my victimhood. That's what gets them going, right? Mm -hmm. And they, in questioning any of the protocols would require them to do to to actually conduct an analysis right to right. apply their critical faculties to say if they're telling me that a leads to b or that not a leads to not b right okay does the evidence prove that out or does it prove it out 70 percent? does it prove it out 50 percent? they don't want to do that they just want to accept there's a threat here's what an authority figure is telling me will will prevent the threat from materializing End of story. And that's what I just do not have any time for respect. Right. And you, and you see this victim mentality when you see the posts all over that are like, hey, I've been I've gotten four covid uh, boosters and I've been stuck in my house for six months. And I finally left one time to go to the grocery store with the mask on. And I came back. And since then, I got covid-19. So it must be the unvaccinated's fault that I got covid-19. And it's mm. it it's there's no logic there's no logic no, that, that, that's rife with logical conflicts right like you can't get past one layer before you run head on de you know dead dead on uh, into the wall of a logical conflict mm -hmm. like right it just it doesn't and i mean i don't know maybe my legal training and background has given me more tools to encounter this stuff but mm -hmm. i don't think that people who just didn't go to law school should be unable to do this right right yeah it's strange i know uh so I don't typically watch local news. Um, uh -huh. I think it's kind of a waste of time. But I had gone down to visit my dad in Alabama, and he's 73, so he always has local news on. And right at four, I mean, it's like they start off with the COVID roll call. You know, this many cases in this county, these counties are red counties, these many hospitalizations. And it's like it's like constantly, it's like daily, hourly. It's like they keep up on these numbers, and it's like if you're constantly berated with that, you know, sure. you, you put yourself in this this fear prison, right. you know, and, and and, you know, again, because you're in that prison, you consider yourself a victim. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. And I think a little bit all of it is that once again, you know, it's the scorecard and you're keeping score. Right. It's not like before COVID, there was no such thing as environment, you know, threats from your natural day to day environment. There were threats, but you didn't consciously calculate right. the level of the threat. Right. You mm. accepted you knew not to put your hand on the stove. You know, most people, they go and get in their car and go on a, a highway at night. I mean, driving on the highway at night is kind of dangerous, right? Bit. It's not, yeah, it's a little bit dangerous. Definitely more, uh, definitely more dangerous than driving on a side street during the day, right? Mm -hmm. But people don't necessarily consciously make the calculus, perform the calculus of comparing uh, uh, the nighttime freeway driving to the daytime side street driving during the day, you know, pre-COVID. But now in the prism of COVID, it's like they're 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 assessing the threat level at all times, but they're not really doing a good job because they don't. A lot of these people they don't they don't acknowledge when the threat's just not that high. Right. Uh, um, you talk a lot about uh, following the data points instead of following the emotions around it. Uh, you talked sure. talked about um, you interviewed uh, shit. What was his name? Craig. No, the doctor. The the Trump doctor. Sure. Uh, well, it wasn't Trump. He was uh, Dr. Peter Navarro. There you go. Uh, so he's definitely a doctor, but he was more so Trump's um, one of his his lead advisors on trade, China, and trade policy. Yep, that that's guy. And he talked about um, 
like one of the things that stood out to me was uh, he made the statement that if you vaccinate everybody, that's what's actually causing the mutations. And um, you hear more and more people screaming that it's the unvaccinated that are causing these mutations. And um, when you look at raw da- data, it, it's people aren't being shown raw data and they don't want to see the raw data. And if you do bring up something like just a basic statement like that, you're instantly called a conspiracy theorist or right. or whatever because or you don't follow the science or or what have you when the data is actually out there it's just people yeah i mean it, it, the 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 idea that oh automatically it's simply the unvaccinated leading to amongst which a virus is circulating no that's not just a conspiracy that's false yeah right so the i don't know if dr navarro was correct about the more people you vaccinate, the more variants you'll have. I'm still questioning that claim. Mm-hmm. But the opposing claim of the you can specifically and definitively trace variants back to the unvaccinated. No, that's that's false. Mm-hmm. OK, nobody's traced to where where some of these these variants come. And first of all, like uh, people in the in the U.S. domestically blaming other domestic actors or people in their own country like Delta came from India. Mm-hmm. OK. Fucking Omicron was originally sequenced in South Africa. And, you know, nobody knows if that's where it originated. But like, do, do you not get it that like, OK, if all if if the unvaccinated, quote unquote, were inherently such such a threat that maybe new strains wouldn't be coming from India and South Africa. You've got millions of unvaccinated people here in the United States. Right. Right. Can you point to one. Can you point to one variant that has originated from that from that cohort right. of the population? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. Okay, so um, the theory and, and assertion by Navarro that the more you vaccinate without vaccinating everybody, that if you vaccinate 80% as opposed to 100%, then that is the more dangerous. I'm not quite sure about that. Um, it might just be that variants happen, man. Right. That variants, that, that variants are inevitable. There's variants on the flu, right? There's different strains of the flu. Mm-hmm. And that you can't necessarily blame one cohort of the population or the other for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, it's a virus's way of surviving. It It's yeah. it's e- evolving to survive an environment, whether that's a vaccinated environment or a an immune system environment. The vaccine, or not the vaccine, the virus is trying to get its host to survive longer, which mm-hmm. you can't even say that anymore, so that it can survive longer and reproduce more, and it can thrive as a as a virus. Right. And uh, yeah. you can't say stuff like that because it's too logical to make those kind of claims. Right. Yeah, no one can play. I mean, you know, I'm actually going to be talking about this on my next pod because I, I interviewed that um, Peter McCullough doctor who was on on Rogan. You know, and I, I you know, I'm on a panel interviewing him, and and you know, the whole idea is to put the ideas to scrutiny, right? It's mm-hmm. like also in law, like the Socratic method. It's like mm-hmm. you you ask an answer and you break down and you, you know, you, you ask questions that you may or may not actually agree with, like in order to aim towards truth, right? right. And nobody wants to put in that effort. Nobody right. wants to do the rigorous shit anymore. They just want to accept one data point. You've got to stop making their conclusions based off one data point. You need right. lots of data points. Well, it, it doesn't help when you get the the talking heads the science the actual science right. like Walensky and Fauci up there giving one data point for you mm. to go well, off of it's yeah. like we're supposed to trust the science but that's what they are doing right. presenting us with yeah yeah no one the, the whole 
the holistic notion of science as once again one data point or the unquestioned unscrutinized right. assertions of people who just happen to be trained science. no that's not what science is mm -hmm. okay that's not what science is mm -hmm. at all it, it is discourse and it is scrutiny right. um and uh, a part of it with these walenskis and fauci's is it's condescending and it's patronizing because they simplify it and try to uh, uh, pre and lecture everyone because they think that 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 people can't handle the actual truth mm -hmm. right people can't handle act like not that they're they're not they're not outright lying like oh well, there's no virus and uh, it's not a threat no it's not like they're, they're just saying the opposite of what's true but they're saying limited truths because they don't think that you can handle actually right. walking through it in three dimensions mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and they they even say that kind of stuff what it's was like it gavin Ga newsom gavin newsom came out and said we don't yeah. expect you guys to understand what's going on behind the scenes here. So we got to do, we got to do it for you because basically you're not smart enough to understand this on right. your own. God, I fucking despise him. <laughs> and you, I, I'm sure you get your fair share of him being out there. Um, so what's, what's going on in Iowa? How, what's the, the uh, environment and the atmosphere like out there? Because I mean, uh, you know, we've got our, our uh, uh, assumptions here out in LA. I know, you know, I travel from Los Angeles to Texas or Florida or, or Nashville and some of these other places and yeah. see the contrast. What's going on in Iowa? Uh, we generally are more on the conservative side where, um, like, our governor's blocked vaccine mandates, that, or at least attempted to, has blocked mask mandates and all this stuff. So to push schools to do, go in person. Yeah, yeah mm -hmm. so, so it's, been, it's been fairly lax for us yeah. here. We did shut down for a couple months yeah. here, but it wasn't anything like you guys experienced there in yeah. California. Now, Iowa City's 30 minutes south. They call that the San Francisco of the Midwest. <laughs> and they're mm -hmm. quite a bit more liberal and, and, you know, they require masks in town and stuff. But for the most part. Even oh, yeah. Iowa? Yeah. 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 In Iowa. Well, this is like college town. Yeah. So. Iowa City is where the university is. And so, yeah, they're they're very uh, uh, liberal. Yeah. It, it's much different scenario if you go down there than than up here. We're in like and blue collar. You guys got to get to Miami. I'm telling you, dude, Miami has been the <laughs> grand champion title holder of this entire. You go to Miami, not a care in the world that it, everyone, no one's bitching and fucking moaning about COVID. But they're all dying, they're right? <laughs> they're all dying of COVID, aren't yeah, they? Apparently, even if you even though if you adjust for populate for uh, age of population, if you were to uh, uh, rate, you know, look at the stats of the top 10 largest states, they're number eight in COVID deaths out, out of those 10 states, age adjusted. It's like, <laughs> no, people are not dying in Florida. And if anything, more should be dying in Florida because they're fucking older. Yeah, it's all it's a retirement home down there. Right. Yeah. Um, you, you brought up that you're having a guest, former guest of the Joe Rogan podcast. And I did want to ask your opinion of last week's Rogan guest, uh, that Dr. Robert Malone, how he talked about the mass forma formation psychosis. Uh, what's your opinion of that? What do you know about that? And how does that kind of apply to what we're talking about here? So as you can see, I like really breaking things down, like boom, 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 specifics, mm -hmm. and chopping it up like that. The more generalized statements like mass formation psychosis, while I can see aspects of them being true, I don't like using those terms because they're so general. I'm like, okay, yeah, a lot of people are, a lot of people are, uh, there, there's a movement uh, and, and a lot of people are uh, acting irrational in the same direction, right? Mm -hmm. But like, okay, in 1962, you know, girls were like literally passing out in their own vomit at Beatles concerts, right? Mm -hmm. Was that a mass formation psychosis and yes it, you could define it as that but is every mass formation psychosis 
the same, right? Right. right. So I, I see, yes, I mean, in or hey, people's reactions in America to September 11th, mm-hmm. right? I mean, can you compare it in that regard? So these these really general terms like that, I think, capture too many disparate, different dynamics that I don't really love. I don't really love them. Um, yeah. Malone on a handful of topics, really good. Uh, 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 the lack of uh, foundational logic for ma- for ma- uh, for uh, uh, mandates for disregarding natu- natural immunity um, over. Uh, uh, exaggerating the usefulness of masks and things of that nature um and looking at some listen it's just and why it's become an app to simply do a pros and cons costs and benefits strengths and weaknesses of the vaccine mm-hmm. it has strengths it has weaknesses right. it has costs it has benefits right and it's just such a childish and ridiculous society to be in a place where you can't do the tail of the tape where you can't do that comparison right, right? Mm-hmm. um so he makes good points there, but then yes, when he's when they start talking about the general thing, I, I just I don't want like what that leads to. It's too easy to counter and it's too difficult to define. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that I, I would have preferred if he had said this has aspects of a mass formation psychosis. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, like like you were said there, um, the fact that he was so general and and broad a broad stroke about it in his statement. It opened up the door to all the freaking uh, fact checkers and stuff right. that are like, well, this exactly. technically isn't a mass formation uh, psychosis because if you really break down and they do the job of breaking it down so they can disprove him. So, right. I mean, it was a very um, generalized statement that was easily yeah. refuted. And then they used that to make him look like his right. the whole re- the whole rest of the three hour interview uh, meant nothing because right. they exactly. fact checked. That's exactly it. And why, like, I want you know, and McCullough, who was on before, and I do have to go in just a minute or two. No problem. But um, McCullough got kind of nailed for saying that you can't get it twice. Hmm. And you know, then listen, man, if you're gonna make really big conclusions like that, you better like hedge your bets a little bit, right? right? Yeah, like. It's extremely unlikely that you will get it a second time, right? Mm-hmm. You've just given yourself so much more cover mm-hmm. if you do that. And, you know, when you say things like mass formation psychosis, that's just a bad rhetorical strategy. Right. When you say that you are one and done, nobody ever can get COVID twice ever, you're you're asking to get harpooned. And it really mm-hmm. detracts from the rest of the message. So I, I don't, you know, I think that these guys, first of all, these guys are both more accurate than 90 to 95% of the people out there. Right. However, they, 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 you know, they, they misstepped a couple times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It so, happens. So last question, and I'll let you get out of here. Um, with everything we talked about, these very, very serious things going on in our country. Um, what do you see the trajectory of our society as loosely as, as as quick as you want to explain this like where where do you see us heading with all of this you think we bounce back from this or you think it just continues to slide downwards well i don't have my 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 outlook for big city coastal cosmopolitan liberal america is not is not pretty um we are here in la and you know in new york in certain regards living a lot california is the worst like even people even my friends from new york are like jesus christ dude it sucks here now really new yorkers say that wow that's crazy oh yeah they're like even new i had friends in new york coming this summer they're like jesus christ you guys with the masks again and this and that um 
and then you know the, the new york has a promising new mayor who's kind of yeah. like us and doesn't take no shit and, mm-hmm. and gets right to the chase so it's a little promising there mm. um la has all its elections in 2022 so it's big year for la that'll be interesting yeah oh there's a lot of it la is gonna be very interesting this year right mm. chat for another time um i see american society twin tracking on the one hand you have the institutions and those who have to operate within the institutions those i think will continue to suck mm. i think those will continue to be governed by victimhood mentality you know intersectional principles bullshit neuroses bureaucratic suffocation all that but then the people who tap out of that and either start new institutions or participate in those new institutions are going to thrive. I mean, the best allegory I can have for this is Substack. I mean, are you guys familiar with Substack and yes. all the writers mm-hmm. that right? So you see that you've got these are not despite what their critics want to say. These are not journalists that are saying shit that's that out of the ordinary. Right. They're just normal journalists who are more no nonsense and unwilling to lie and, you know, value the truth more and, and don't care if the, about blowback. Right. And so they say, oh, I'm not welcomed at these these corporations anymore. I'm not welcome at this, this uh, media institution anymore. So I'm going to go to Substack. I'm going to go direct to the consumer. And I know a bunch of them. I know the Barry Weisses. I know, you know, uh, other friends of mine who are on Substack who are making more money, Michael Tracy, making more money than they ever made working in a publication. Right. Well, they're thriving there, right? So the Substack class of journalists, thriving, intellectual honesty, exploring cool shit, making more money, and the people who are back at these institutions, for the most part, you know, with some exceptions, have to operate based on on this really broken system and and do the dance. And I think that is going to repeat itself in a few different ways, okay. you know, across more categories. Well, I think that's positive that. We now have these platforms that weren't available a a decade ago or whatever. So uh, the information can get out there and the people that are uh, that don't want to put up with the shit anymore can move over and carry their follower over to a podcast platform or a Substack platform or something like that. It there's 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 definitely some some area to be positive there. So I guess we sure. take, take take whatever good we can find out of all this because um, I, I don't think there's ever, anytime soon they're going to ever be able to completely shut down all the um, alternative resources for, for information to get out there. And mm-hmm. they're, they're going to have a hell of a time doing it. And then- oh, yeah, no, no. They're, they're not shutting them. It's going to be more annoyance and aggravation than this universal wholesale mm-hmm. censorship. It's, yep. it's going to be pinpricks. Yeah. Well, I know you got to get out of here. So Matt, why don't you let us know where people can find out more about you, find your podcast and all that stuff and anything else you're doing. Yeah, for sure. So Matt Belinsky, I'm an attorney in L.A. with uh, Weinberg Gonzer LLP um, on social media. You can find me you know, primarily on Twitter and Instagram, um, M-A-T-T-B-I-L-I-N-S-K-Y. The podcast is The Prevailing Narrative, um, Apple uh, uh, Apple Podcasts, uh, iHeartRadio, Spotify, wherever else you find your podcast. Um, should have some cool stuff coming up sometime soon. So Hope you guys listen in. And guys, I wanted to thank you very much for reaching out. You know, this was a fun chat. Yeah. Um, if we could get out to, to Iowa, I got to pop my cherry out there and make it out of, out there one of these days. Definitely. So, um, you know, we should connect in, in person sometime soon. Absolutely. And, and appreciate the chat. Yeah, man. We, we appreciate you taking the time to come on and uh, uh, share some logic with us because, like I said, it's very hard to find that these days. So mm-hmm. th- thanks, thanks for coming on. Uh, we'll let you get out of here. Um, 
uh, we'll definitely have you on again sometime if you're ever open and definitely hit us up if you're in the area. No doubt, man. Thank you so much. All, All right, right Matt, have a good one. Thanks. You too. That was Matt Belinsky of the Prevailing Narrative Podcast, and that was a really good conversation. It was. It, it, it's good to hear people come bring some logic, mm-hmm. less emotion, more logic into it. I mean, I, I, I feel that we are even guilty of bringing a lot of emotion into a conversation. Yeah. And um, if... if you haven't yet go go check out that show um i'll I'll post links in the show notes for the actual when i release this as as an actual podcast so you can go check that out if you want to hear another side somebody else talking about some of the same stuff we talk about i don't even agree with some of the stuff he says on his show but Mm -hmm. just the way he presents it it's just like oh okay i can uh logically entertain myself with this and actually see the your side of this or his guest sides of this yeah and it's it's just an overall entertaining conversation that I don't feel like I'm going to punch somebody in the face because I'm listening to it. Yeah, and it's always good getting that, you know, something, a different side, you know, multiple sides of any kind of discussion mm-hmm. or argument. And Absolutely. so, again, him bringing a, a very logical, blunt uh, topic um, to the conversation is great. Yeah, and this whole talk about uh, victimhood and how it's basically a currency and a status, a st- a status level. I, this is stuff I've been saying mm-hmm. on my own, but it's stuff that you're not really allowed to talk about for whatever, right. well, the obvious reasons. Yeah. But um, we're going to continue on talking about that and see if we can get completely um, blacklisted from society by by talking Perfect. about it. Uh, this might be a shorter episode. I just want to kind of continue on a little bit about his mm-hmm. conversation there. Uh, so I, I didn't really prepare a lot for the second half because I wasn't sure where the conversation was going to go. So we're just going to kind of dialogue. I got a few things that uh, I had mentioned briefly to Matt, but I knew we didn't have a lot of time, so we'll dig into some of those articles uh, a little bit deeper, and then we'll just see where the show goes, yeah. and we'll get out of here. We're going to we're gonna take a quick break. When we come back, we're just going to continue this conversation. Go refresh your drink. Do whatever it is you got to do. We'll be back in four or five minutes, and we're just going to continue this. We will be right back. Have you ever thought that maybe voting, maybe all this politics constantly surrounding you is not the way to achieve freedom in your life? Hi, I'm Remster W. Martinez, and I ask myself the same question. That's why I'm on a journey to find true freedom in my lifetime. From learning about financial independence to new ways to develop rugged individualism to amazing guests living strange, crazy, amazing lifestyles that you've only thought might be real, but actually are. Go ahead and check out my new show, On the Run with Remster W. Martinez at the We Are Libertarians Network. You can find On the Run with Remster W. Martinez on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play. You know how the internet works. Come on down and let's discover how to achieve real freedom in your life together. Hey, everybody. I just want to take this time to give a big shout out to the very first sponsor of the Break the Bell podcast. That is Goulash Media. They can be found at goulashmedia.net. Goulash Media specializes in graphic design, web design, audio recordings, video work, wedding videos, uh, music videos, even political campaign videos. Uh, Goulash Media caters to the little guy with the big vision. You can check them out at goulashmedia.net. That's G-O-U-L-A-S-H media.net.
Sounds like a 80s sci-fi soundtrack. Yeah. I was trying to find some new music when I recorded my bonus episode this week, and this this track popped up. I just uh, go on YouTube and look for like free, uh, oh, okay. uh, non-copywritten music, and there's, okay. all, there's all kinds of stuff. That's yeah. where uh, our pre-show music came from. Okay. Trying to get as few copyright strikes as possible, but we usually always get one for that intro video because oh, sure. of the Pantera song. Right. But uh, this one popped up, and I was like, oh, shit, I got to use that one. That yeah. was cool. No, so, I like it. So, hopefully you got to experience that interview with Matt Belinsky of the Prevailing Narrative Podcast because uh, it was a really interesting conversation. And I know yeah. we're, we're, we're talking about several things that we've talked about before, as mm. like COVID and, and things like that. But it's nice to get it from a, a, his perspective, mm-hmm. tying this all together from like almost a psychological like standpoint. Right, like, yeah. Rather than just that... Um, that raw the, the emotions of what the the media is telling you right breaking it down from like the way people think mm. versus what's actually going on logically around yeah. you and and and, and he's another these. one that is um very uh non-partisan which i like yeah you know listening to some of the podcasts I, i've listened to i mean he doesn't hold back from either side yeah and you, you can't tell what what yeah. political side of the the yeah. aisle he sits if he sits on a political side and yeah. and I enjoy that with a podcast yeah not knowing that unknown because you don't know which direction usually if you know like say you go listen to like Sean Hannity or right. like yeah. Tucker Carlson or like Rachel Maddow yeah. and they bring up a subject you know the direction they're going to go with mm-hmm. this conversation right and that's why I, I can't even do it anymore with any of them because I get tired of the partisanship yeah and and. T- it's it's like watching a horror mo- like yeah. a, a B-rated horror movie. It's like once the music kicks in, you know what's going to mm-hmm. happen. You can predict it. Or those like crime TV dramas. Right, yeah. My daughter likes to watch those and uh, you can almost predict the dialogue that they're oh, going yeah. to say next. And, yeah. and that's how a lot of these quote-unquote reporters mm-hmm. are anymore on on both sides of the yeah. aisle. It's just like, well, they're talking about this subject, but I know exactly where this direction is going to go. Yeah. And, and like I said, I, I thought that's how he was going to be. I was like, I, I'm i going into the skeptical because I have a feeling where this is going to go. And mm-hmm. it, it blew my mind how it was just like I had no clue where he was going. Like every every step of the way, mm-hmm. every topic he talks about, it's like I, I don't know what he's going to say next about yeah. this because it's so nonpartisan. It's so just straight to the point mm-hmm. versus – uh just taking like a side of the aisle or yeah. something like that. So yeah. really good conversation. Him talking about um, this whole victimhood uh, inflation mm. where where we're putting people on a pedestal or putting people as higher status based yeah. on their, their victim status. And, and again, we're not downplaying actual legitimate victims. No, no not at all. What's actually downplaying legitimate victims are the people that play the victim yeah. card so much. Those yeah. are the ones that uh, not only like m- mentally drain us on this mm-hmm. whole concept of victimhood. It- it's like um, the hashtag Me Too-, Too movement. Right. It got to a point where it's just like, oh, so and so raped so and so, and it just got to the point yeah. where it's just like, uh, somebody else did something, yeah. s- sexually assaulted somebody, and there was no longer. The shock value there. There was no yeah. longer the the reaction there. It's just we got so saturated with right. it for what a year, year yeah. and a half straight, and and not only does it drain us mentally, but it also drains legitimate resources towards right. those victims. When you get like the Jesse yeah. Smollett's out there that are 
costing the police force what millions of dollars to go right. out and investigate investigate this. Yeah. What else could have that money yeah. gone towards? Yeah, and I, you know, I feel like this really kicked off with um with Obama. Yeah, because during his his presidency, I mean, he was. I feel like he was the first, like major political, like figure mm-hmm. to really hammer in the emotional aspect of things, right? Right. And you know, he came out with that book, Dreams of My Father, and and he talks about a lot of the the persecution he got being a, a young black man growing up. Sure. And then you know, coming out and, and talking about how hard it was, and and. and you know how hard it was for him and Michelle, and Michelle has a story about how she she felt um, you know like prejudiced against uh, racism when she tried to buy paper towels at Target. Right, right. And, and it just became this whole thing. And it's like you guys are are Harvard graduates. You're the fucking president of the United States, and you're millionaires. <laughs> you're the most powerful person. Yeah, in the you're world. the most, pr- and, and you're gonna play the victim card. Right. I mean, it just blew my mind. And then, and then shortly after that, Oprah came out and, and was talking about how she was in Milan, Italy, trying to buy a purse. And the guy in Italy was like, I don't think you can afford this. Well, uh, what this does is, and I've got an article here from an actual progressive that's talking about this victim, victimization. What it does is it perpetually puts you in that mindset that you're a victim and you right. don't move forward because yes. society is stacked against you, no matter if it's... Uh, based on race, based on gender, based on mm-hmm. your sexual identity or whatever, society is stacked against you. So you're never going to make it in yeah. the world. So you then you get this mental image that I'm never going to make it in the world because yeah. society stacked against me. Absolutely. Instead of, you remember the American dream where you basically right. could get whatever you wanted yeah. if you hunkered down and yeah. strapped your boots on and worked hard yeah. enough. Uh, gone are the days of even... Mention if if you even mention the American dream, you're you're basically it's oh you're, yeah your privilege. That, that's is almost showing. racist. Yeah, that, exactly. You're showing your white privilege by even mentioning the the um, American dream. Just. Yeah. So uh, this article I have here that I wanted to to kind of uh, talk a little bit about that I said was from a progressive standpoint, mm-hmm. progressive view is called the dangerous allure of victim politics. Let me uh, get this one shared. For some reason, my screen's not available to share. So this is from littleadams.com. This That's is just one. I, I think this is just a uh, like an opinion piece, oh, but gotcha. it, it, there's some really interesting stuff in it. So it says complaining about victimhood mentality and victimhood politics is perhaps easier for the right wing who tend to agree more with individual explanations to social problems and an individual's culpability if things turn out wrong. And I tend to lean more towards that, like, individuals cause problems yes. for themselves. I, I do get that some people have more advantage than other people mm-hmm. out there. But I also think from an individual level, you can change your your stars or whatever. Right. Yeah. I mean, you see it. You used to see in movies all the time, people right. changing their yeah. stars. Yeah, I mean, look at uh, freaking Rocky. I mean, he was the, the embodiment of that, you know? Yeah. So So this goes on to say... Uh, it's sometimes expressed in little Johnish spineless progressives pandering to wingers only to make them whinge more. I don't know what a whinge is. Uh, <laughs> which blames legitimate cringe. which blames legitimate victims no matter what. Indeed, the very word victimhood chips away at a victim's legitimacy. So it's basically saying uh, right wingers make this worse by calling them snowflakes or whatever. Right. Okay. Um, but then this author shifts towards the pro- to talk straight to the progressives and how Mm -hmm. they're not doing a good job of this. It says, 
But progressive liberals should also worry about the allure of victimhood politics because it's even easier for them to end up in this unhelpful cul-de-sac. Let me try to blow this up a little. I can't read. I'm getting old. says, this is because progressives are or should be in the business of helping marginalize or oppress groups. In trying to do so, progressives sometimes attribute a kind of superior virtue or presumed authority to those who are victimized. And we talked about that, how they're, they're held to a higher status. Right. They're, they're um, kind of given, I, I guess, a handicap for, yeah. for their victimhood. So um, they're, they're held at a superior virtue, as this calls it. Mm-hmm. It says, and they're reluctant to disagree with anyone who claims to feel like a victim. So you can't question it you can't hold right. people accountable accountable if they claim to be a victim right says this incentivizes everyone and anyone to declare themselves as society's victims divorced from any significant personal experience or suffering or oppression and when government makes available funding to resolve said grievance a cottage industry emerges with the incentive is to keep the whole thing going the danger is an identity politics of aggressively competing victimhoods it's like Who's who's the worst victim? You're right. like who's struggling the worst? And you see that on both sides. You see, oh, yeah. like when people talk about uh, the the history of the treatment of African Americans, you get those those white people that are like, oh, the Irish people were were right. oppressed just as much. I mean, we, yeah. we're, we're competing for right. uh, that higher victimhood status. Yeah. It goes on to say, the danger is an identity politics of aggressively competing victimhoods in which groups of people, based on religious, national, ethnic, sexual, or whatever else identity they choose, demand to have their victimhood status recognized and something done about it. This quashes all debate and moral reasoning, and in the end, does little to resolve genuine oppression and suffering. Says in a 1999 article for the New York Review of Books, Ian Baruma argued there's a strange contentment that comes with feeling like you're oppressed rather than actually being oppressed, which really is not nice. (laughs) (laughs) Victims, he said, cannot escape a momentary feeling of vicarious virtue. He claims to have felt it himself, much to his own shame as a Jew visiting Auschwitz every time a German walked past. So he... Yeah, kind of compared himself to that, whatever. Right. Says, Burima even thought he detected a shade of envy in privileged groups that they too can't be victims of similarly uh, sufficient magnitude. Goes on to say, Burima thought people liked to feel like society's victims, even where they were personally doing rather well because modern life hollows out identities. Then it goes on to talk about how hypercapitalism is reducing meaningful beliefs and identity to fast foods, sterile movies, and empty gestures. I don't think it has anything to do with capitalism. It has everything to do with there's no substance in society right. anymore. Yeah, exactly. It says, but people want and perhaps need to be authentic, the real and genuine in life. And so in an external world in which everything seems to be empty, we turn inward to a search for authenticity. I don't think it's a search for authenticity. I think it's a search... It's a search to be something, like I was saying. Right. Like everybody, yeah. especially like specifically right now, Hollywood celebrities or right. singers, they have to be some kind of identity. Right. And it can't just be your typical straight white whatever. Right. Yeah. It's gotta be um even even just coming out and saying you're gay now isn't yeah. enough. Right. Yeah. Like you have to be like gender fluid or ge- yeah. wh- whatever. It's gotta be one of these it's like they're competing for the most odd right. of them. And 
I, I wanted to bring up to Matt in the first half, but I mean, time was rolling quick, so I had to get through stuff. It seems like a lot of the celebrities that are starting to lose their uh, the, the, the spotlight, yeah, lose the spotlight, lose significance on the stage. Uh, they, that's when they all of a sudden flip mm-hmm. around and they're like, "Hey guys, I'm this now." Yeah, right. I mean, look yeah. at look at Caitlyn Jenner, Jenner. Yeah, I mean, Bruce Jenner was was at the top of his game. He was right. in the spotlight in yeah. what was it, the seventies, seventies, eighties, seventies. He won. He was like a multi Olympic medal, Mr. Olympian. Yeah, yeah. And nobody had besides Wheaties the Card besides the Kardashians, nobody had really heard much about him. Right. And he was being overshadowed, obviously, oh, by yeah. the Kardashians. Right. So then, all of a sudden, there's this flip to Caitlyn Jenner. I'm not saying he, I'm not saying he's lying about no. his gender identity. Yeah, but it just it's weird how it's always when they're kind of losing that spotlight mm-hmm. that yeah that this well, happens. And you see that with with Demi Lovato. You know, I right. mean, first she came out and she said, "Oh, I'm, I'm bipolar," and then she came out and was like, "I'm bi." And now she came out and she's like, "No, I'm gender fluid." Mm-hmm. You know, and it, and now she she's you know talking to to ghost or something like that yeah, I don't it's remember. just it's it, like a drug almost yeah it's like right you need the that. gateway drug and then you need a yeah. little more and you and i i was i was curious of the dopamine effects of some of mm-hmm. this identity that's good crisis question, yeah. and stuff i i was i meant to ask matt about this but um it it just never came out yeah. i wonder if there's a dopamine effect of this to to the point yeah. where you have to have a little more and a little more and yeah. I, I I don't know. I, but I don't you know. You see that, and you, I don't know if it was Matt that asked the question or you asked the question. Like, you know, what is seeing celebrities and pop culture people do this? What does that do to our kids? Yeah. You know, what does right. that do to our, our teen, the teens that that see this and they're struggling with their own identities, mm-hmm. and then they see you know somebody that they idolize come out and they're like, oh, I know firsthand. Like, my daughter, most of her friends have are something. Mm-hmm. And I've even talked to her about it. I was like, you don't see how this might just be a trend thing right. that everybody's doing? I was like, in my day, like uh, you can st- stand up for pride, whatever you want now. But it's not the same thing as in my day. Right. In my day, there was people that legitimately I didn't know were gay until like years after high school because yeah, they weren't able to... <laughs> Be that identity right. that it, they it was, they identify yeah, as. Right. It was it was so much more like of a, a negative stigma. Right. Back when we were younger. But now, if you're not something, there's almost a negative right. stigma to it. It's like you're not one of the cool kids, I guess. Right. If you're not something, and I mean, when you're constantly having to be something to identify yourself, how does that mentally affect children? Right. How yeah. does that? And. I don't. It, it, I don't want to stay on the the whole transgender or whatever. Right. Right. No. No. Uh, gender. That. Gender identity. But, but but it's not enough to to just be you. Mm-hmm. Right. It's not enough just to to be yourself because you is boring. Apparently. Right. Yeah. Right. And, but even though I mean everybody has their own you know struggles, their own battles, their own traumas. It, it that's not good enough. Mm-hmm. You have to kick it up a couple notches. Right. You know. And and it's like you know has has life become so easy. That it's like now it's like it's 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 a not a it's no longer like an, a luxury to be you know the, the just a boring kid you gotta yeah, make shit right. up so because your your life isn't hard enough right you know and I could talk about this for hours mm-hmm. but um, I want to keep going with this article it, it moves on it says I suspect the internet makes this worse yes. you suspect it, it clearly makes it worse yes. I mean all this shit is just in people's face oh, yeah. all the time. 
I mean, that, most of the time, the, these celebrities that that do come out with whatever revelation they have, it's it's on Twitter. Mm-hmm. You know, it says it provides unlimited opportunity to find reasons to feel victimized and assert that claim to the world. Take the modern scourge of internet trolling. Many people, I've documented some of them in my book, The Dark Net, are genuinely tormented and terrorized by trolls. Others appear to almost revel in it. If you're not getting trolled, you're obviously not famous enough. Being trolled by strangers on the net gives you the chance to show how hard things are for you, how right you were, and how noble and magnanimous you are in, in sharing your suffering with the world. It is very rarely mentioned that the victims of trolls are often far more often privileged, wealthy, happy, and successful than their perceived oppressors who are often frustrated, jealous, and lonely. It talks about uh, identity anti-politics. It says, there are lots of reasons for progressives to guard against feeling-based victimhood politics. First, it's inherently anti-political. Politics is about disagreement, argument, and debate. And we talk about this all the time. There's mm. no room for that disagreement and debate anymore. Right. It's just everybody takes their side, and if you're not on my side, then you're wrong and you're right. oppressing me, or I'm oppressing you. That's, right. that's just what it is anymore. It's yeah. just... Just that's what it's become in the last, and that's only within what the last five or six years. I, would I think. Say so yeah. It says feelings, especially those relating to victimhood, cannot really be argued with, and we talked about that. You can't put a price tag on victimhood. Right. It says can't be argued with, debated, or questioned. Only meekly accepted, as Baruma put it. Arguing over degrees of victimhood replaces moral reasoning, since victims aren't always right. This can be used as justification for bad behavior. Mm. Uh, so this one goes on and on and on. I can't get into the whole article, but it goes on to say, at the very edge of this problem, the constant vigilance, the countless declarations of our society or institutions being riddled with racism, sexism, Islamophobia, etc., can become a council of despair. It can convince victims that their cause is helpless, that society is inexorably set against them, thereby pushing them further away. And we talk about how we we feel like this is maybe the intention of the left is to yeah. marginalize marginalized people, like right. make them feel so helpless, and society is stacked so against them that there's no them. way that they, yeah they need them to pull them right. out of their current situation. Not hey I can I can get myself out of this mm-hmm. on my own. I need the government or I need ex-politician right. to help pull me from this shitty situation that I'm in. And we, we talked about that um year ago or whatever when we talked about 1984, that mm. that was a tool of politicians was to seek out the disenfranchised and then say, hey, I got your cause. And then when that person isn't disenfranchised enough, mm. they have to reach out another tier and look for the next group of disenfranchised because the other group wasn't cutting it anymore. But they can't keep their power if they don't have the disenfranchised. So you think they have your best interest at hand and they want to pull you out of that? No, because then they're not going to have that power anymore. Yeah, they have to keep you on the the government teat. It's like what an analogy, what we talk about Dr. Fauci and COVID. Fauci's always going to keep COVID around because that's his source of power. Once COVID goes away, Fauci's going to have to take that. Did you see his, like... uh, predicted retirement or his offered retirement it was no. like four hundred seventy five thousand dollars or no, it was like three hundred seventy five thousand dollars but it was the highest retirement of any u.s yeah position ever in history yeah and i i think that was offered to him 
a few months ago that when he retires, this is going to be sitting for him. Side note, but anyway, yeah. like I was saying, once once COVID goes away, there goes Fauci's power. Right. And so he's he's going to do what he can to keep scaring us into believing oh, that COVID's still around. And, absolutely. And that's politicians with everything victimhood. Yeah. Like, they're going to keep making you think. Like, you think that they're here to help the oppressed, yeah. but in reality, they want you to keep thinking that you are oppressed because yeah. then you keep coming back to them. Exactly. Like you said, sucking at the teat. Yeah, it's like you, you need them to fight your battles for you. Right. You know, it's that, that white savior complex that, sure. that, that they have. That Unfortunately, none of the, quote, disenfranchised, unquote, see the fact that they're being used. Mm-hmm. And, you know, those that do are suddenly race haters. You know, they right. hate their own race. Yeah. So it's, um, you know, you can't think for yourself. And you, you can't question that. You can't hold that yeah. accountable because, again— you can't put a price on somebody's victimhood. You can't right. you can't tell somebody that they don't feel something in a certain situation. You can't. Yeah. And if you can make them feel more that they they feel that then I guess you hold all the cards. Right. So and I I really feel like the media because people are so prone mm. to acting out on the emotions of this. They're so prone to not seeing the logic because of this mentality, it's majorly exploited by the media oh, all over the place. Yeah, You see, and the media has done a good job of shooting themselves in the foot with it, though, mm-hmm. when when they go, I mean, they go full full bore when a story pops up. When Jesse Smollett's story popped up, oh, they yeah. went all in on this story. Yeah. It, wasn't, it wasn't just the media, but it was also politicians. You mm-hmm. had... Uh, Kamala Harris coming out making statements, Joe Biden coming out making statements, um, all these media companies coming yeah. out and saying, well, this is just this is just evidence of the systemic racism and right. the problem that we the underlying problem we have here in America. Well, then it turns around and this was so badly botched by yeah. Jesse Smollett that they have to eat their words on it. And how yeah. many times do they got to eat their words before people just oh, stop yeah. giving them credit? Well, nobody asked the question of why there's so much coverage over Rittenhouse mm-hmm. and what he did in Wisconsin and the nameless vehicle that drove through people in the parade that, mm-hmm. you know, that is hardly talked about at all. Well, look at like the Nick Sandman incident. We brought this up yeah. a few times. The victim was the Native American guy that I, right. apparently this white college student was like, harassing or whatever. And there's so much video evidence to show that CNN's narrative was so clearly wrong Mm. on this, but they they ran with this whole victim story. And they doubled down on it. Yeah, hardcore. Oh, yeah. And then when it came out, I mean, how many millions of dollars did they end up having to pay Nick Sandman for dragging his name through the mud? And how much will they have to pay to Rittenhouse? Yeah, yeah. It's just like they they go full bore running with Mm -hmm. this shit, and that just makes it that much worse because people see... People like Jesse Smollett see where this gets them, yeah, and they think, "Hey, I, I, I can do that." Yeah. Hey, I, I mean, I can. I mean, maybe Jesse Smollett thought he was actually fighting a cause here. Well, if oh, I can, I'm sure he did. If I can expose it, even if I, even if it's through horrible acting, if I can expose what's really going, yeah. I, I can spark a conversation here. Right. But did he really do anything good for no. actual legitimate victims no. of racism? No. No, because now. Every time somebody is assaulted, yeah. Now people are going to question. Well, was that really? Did that really happen? Right. Or is this another Jesse Smollett incident? Right. Yeah. And how? What did they? He do for 
police officers believing an actual victim now. Right. Because yeah. how, how pissed is the police department? Oh, that, yeah. It was Chicago, wasn't yeah. it? Oh, yeah. How, how pissed? Do you really want Chicago police pissed what, at you? Yeah, no shit. <laughs> so now anytime somebody's like, hey, I am I was the, the victim of a hate crime here, they're going to be like, yeah, but, but really? Really, mm-hmm. were you? But, you know, um, Matt brought up a good point in his podcast mm-hmm. is that everybody's talking about, you know, the what right? with Jesse Smollett. Nobody's talking about what kind of environment we've created that causes a celebrity. I, I think he's a celebrity, right? Jesse Smollett. Yeah, he was on Mighty Ducks. I didn't know that. I know. I didn't know that either. But what causes somebody to, to go out there and, and perpetuate this whole thing, right? And it, it means there's so much bigger of a problem in society when people are, are trying to create this. It's like, how do you fix it? Like, what was he go- was he going trying to boost his own a- like attention on him, like boost right. his credibility? Like we talked about, like right. they become have a higher credibility status if they're yeah. the victim of a hate crime or the victim of assault or something yeah. like that. Now, I mean, just just look like like my example with the X Factor; those people with the cool backstories, right? right. Yeah, get held to a, a a higher level because they have this this. Sad backstory, and yeah. I I do think there are a lot of sad backstories out there, mm-hmm. but is that what is that really what we want to achieve success through? Is based right. on not based on what we did, but our shitty experiences we went through. Right. Yeah, and I <laughs> you're debating on whether you should say it. yes, uh, something else, but um. <laughs> Anyways, um, I, I think that when you look at, say, like um, critical race theory, mm-hmm. I think all that's going to do is institutionalize this kind of thinking. Yeah? Yeah. And I think it's going to put it in the heads of all these these young kids in school, and they're going to run with it where they feel like they are the victims and that they are entitled to something. Yeah. Sure. And, and they have to be the bigger victim to so people, like you said— will give them credibility. Right. And, it, I mean, if you continue this direction, it only, like, compounds on itself. And yeah. things just get so far out of hand. Right. And I, I don't even know where this goes, but I, I've got a, a couple other things. I want to just mention this article. This talks about the evolutionary advantage of playing the victim. And then I want to get into that article that discussed um, how people with that victimhood mentality are the ones that, by the narrative uh, mm. and follow yeah. hook, line, and sinker, all the uh, COVID restrictions yeah. and stuff. And it, it makes sense. And, and it's so sad because, again, we, we've talked about the, the American dream and, and, and how people who, who overcome, you know, were always, like, lifted up and put on the pedestal, right? Mm-hmm. The Rocky story. You know, you, you look at these, you know, guys that come out of nowhere and, and from relatively poverty to, to actually become something and something of influence. And and sure. that's no longer good enough. No. Right? You, you still have to be the victim. No. Right? You, you, like LeBron. Like uh, freaking, uh, um, what's the, the football player that annoys the shit out of me? Uh, which one? The one that kneels. Oh, uh, Kaepernick. <laughs> yeah, Kaepernick. It's like these guys hit the pinnacle, mm-hmm. right? These guys got to the top. Of where they are, and it's not good enough, right? You know. Well, one of the things Matt talked about in his podcast was companies feeling the need to virtue virtue signal, like mm-hmm. 
And we, we see like it all Nike. the time, like Nike did with Ka- by hiring Kaepernick. Yeah. Like um, all these ads where you have no idea what they're talking about, like the, the Santa Claus ad we watched on our, our oh, Christmas God. thing. <laughs> it's like we don't even know what they're advertising right. for, but they're virtue signaling the hell out of it yeah. because they know that's what sells now. Right. Virtue signaling. If a major corporation is selling through virtue signaling, it's not because they care about you. It's yeah. because they know they can make fucking money off right. of it. They're, they're appealing to the emotions again, right. and that's that's where apparently the money is. So this article is from Quillette.com. I've never heard of it, but it, okay. it's titled The Evolutionary Advantage of Playing the Victim. I just want to hit a little bit on this one real quick. It says, Victimhood is defined in negative terms, the condition of having been hurt, damaged, or made to suffer. Yet humans have evol- evolved to empathize with the suffering of others, which... That's not a bad thing to empathize with others and to provide assistance so as to eliminate or compensate for that suffering. Consequently, signaling suffering to others can be an effective strategy for attaining resources. Victims may receive attention, sympathy, and social status, as well as financial support and other benefits. And being a victim can generate certain kinds of power. It can justify the seeking of retribution, provide a sense of legitimacy or psychological standing to speak on certain issues, and may even confer moral impunity by minimizing blame for victims' own wrongdoings. He ta- they talked about, uh, in that, that paragraph, it talked about receiving attention or sympathy or financial support. And that's what I was saying. Like, who are you pulling the resources away from, though? The actual legitimate victims. If you're playing a victim, if you're making up in your head that you're some sort of victim, you're pulling resources away and you're hurting your cause of social justice or whatever. And that's the problem we have with social justice. It's not really Mm -hmm. social justice. It's like everything, everyone has a problem and everyone thinks they're owed something. Right. Presumably, most victims would eagerly forgo such benefits if they were able to free themselves of their plight. That's that's how you know the difference between a real victim and somebody playing the victim. Right. The real victims would bypass all that support, all that financial yeah. whatever, to not have to if, – if they could go back in time and not go through that and Absolutely. not receive the benefits yeah. after the fact, I th- they would take that says, but when victimhood yields benefits, it incentivizes people to signal their victimhood to others or exaggerate or even fake victimhood entirely. This is especially true in the context that involve alleged psychic harms and where appeals are made to third parties with the claim claim damage often being invisible and unverifiable and based exclusively on self-reports. Again, you can't put a price tag on victimhood. (coughs) Excuse me. Such circumstances allow unscrupulous people to take advantage of the kindness and sympathy of others by co-opting victim status for personal gain, and so people do. People are inherently selfish. Mm -hmm. Says, uh, newly published research indicates that people who more frequently signal their victimhood, whether real, exaggerated, or false, are more likely to lie and cheat for material gain and denigrate others as a means to get ahead. Victim signaling is associated with numerous morally undesirable personality traits such as narcissism, Machiavellism, uh, willingness to manipulate and exploit others for self-benefit, and a sense of entitlement and lower honesty and humility. What do you think about that statement? It makes sense. Yeah. I agree with it. People that are willing, that that push that virtue signaling, that Mm. victimhood signaling, 
they're more likely the narcissists that don't actually give a shit about other people that yeah. are are hurting other people's problems. They yeah. they just want to benefit themselves. Right. So it makes sense. Says it's uh, consistent with this theory. Other recent work indicates that victimhood or enduring feeling that the self is a victim may be a stable personality trait. This personality trait is characterized by a need for others to acknowledge and empathize with one's victimhood, feelings of moral superiority, and a lack of empathy for others' suffering. This personality trait was found to be relatively stable across time and relationship contexts and was associated with higher perceived severity of received offenses, holding grudges, vengefulness, entitlement to behave immorally, remunate rumination, distrust, neuroticism, and attribution of negative qualities of others. So I'm not going to read this whole thing, but I, I found some of that stuff interesting. And this isn't just like somebody saying, oh, these people are a bunch of snowflakes. No, they're basing this on actual psychological studies right. of people that play this victim card. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I, I don't know, like, how do you decipher between a true victim and... And one that's playing the victim when everybody thinks they have to be something nowadays. Yeah. And that's what makes it hard. And that's what turns off people and makes people on the other side react emotionally and be like, yeah. you're just you're just making this shit up for attention or whatever. Yeah. And it, it it detracts from the actual it, victims. It, it out does. There. And, and the, <laughs> the sure way to turn me off is I can't stand martyrs. Mm -hmm. When you know someone's complaining about something and then you offer to help, no, it's fine. I'm used to it. It's like, all right, then you know what? You're on your own. Yeah, I, I, I tried. I offered. Yeah, exactly. But if you don't want to take my offer, yeah, then fine. If but, you just want to pl keep playing this yeah. poor, poor me thing, exactly, then that's fine. And, and that's the the to me that's when they have a chance to pull themselves out of it, but they just they refuse to because it's like this is all they know. Yeah, that that to me that's when, and I, I've seen it. I see it all the time. Um, you know, we, we used to have, um, somebody we had gone to church with that we worked with and stuff. And it's all she would, you know, it's like, you know, didn't have a car, didn't have a boyfriend, you know, and, and you know, had no life. And, and, but whenever there was an offer to no, no, it's fine. Yeah. I'm used to it. You know, wow. it's like, you know. Yeah. It, that would drive me batshit crazy, first yeah. of all. And I, I don't know. It just waters down the whole concept of. Mm -hmm people having problems out there. Yeah, yeah. And I know everybody has a problem out there. That's yeah. It's not what we're saying. We're not saying nobody yeah. has, only a select few have problems that we need to focus on. Mm-hmm. But, but, but how selfish is it to overinflate your victim status over another oh, person's? incredibly, yeah. And, and, you know, on the other hand, I, there was a, a woman, um, she had come to the church uh, that my wife worked at looking for help. Mm-hmm. Um, the the mother of the these children, their, her daughter um, and son-in-law, both had gotten arrested for drugs. Okay. Okay, so the grandmother was left with these three young kids. She had written to the church looking for some, some financial support or mm -hmm. looking for some school supplies or whatever. Right. So the church reached out to her, and, and I had gone over and met with the kids, and you know I decided to help mentor the, the young boy. And um, and so the, the mother, like... The, the grandmother, like, had no idea about anything, mm -hmm. right? She didn't have her driver's license or anything. So the church helped her to get her driver's license. Okay. As soon as she saw what she could do, like, what was available to her, 
everything opened up for her. Yeah. I mean, once once she got her driver's license, she got a car, she got a job. I mean, she flourished. Right. But nobody had shown her the door. Nobody had said, look, this is all you got to do. And yeah. I think give that's people the... the resource to help themselves. Exactly. It's the whole uh, concept of give a man a fish, yes. he'll eat for a yes. day. Teach a man a fish, he'll eat for a lifetime. Yeah. Give people the resources to help themselves out yeah. of a shitty situation instead yeah. of continuously tell them you're, you're fucked. In a, you're in a si- <laughs> shitty situation. And just take the money. And it's not. It's not just you. It's everybody like you. Uh, yeah. That the system was stacked against. Yeah. And. I'm not saying the system at some point wasn't stacked against no. like minorities. Right. I'm not saying that even now that it's not yeah, somehow some stacked places. against yeah. minorities in, in some places worse than others. But when you have when you're shown that opportunity and you take it and you realize, hey, I can pull myself right. out of that, that's got way more value to it than just the constant um this that's what gets us into this um welfare state that right. we, we currently live in. It's like people intentionally from what i see are are being yeah made to think that they need this to survive for their survival at some point i'm sure it is to their survival right. but when you stack the the system is stacked against them but it's in the form of hey we're going to give you these welfare be- welfare mm-hmm. benefits and while you're on this and while if you don't have a job, then you'll receive these welfare benefits. But if you get a minimum wage job, then right. no longer do you get these welfare benefits. Yeah. And so you can't work your way up to a position where you can sustain yourself because, hey, what w- what's better? It's it's like what we talked about with the COVID payments, like the unemployed, right. le- inflated yeah. COVID unemployment. It's like, what would you rather have, $9,000 a month over here or whatever, $6,000 a month over here? Or go back to your job making three thousand right. dollars a month, or whatever it was. Yeah, I'm just making numbers up right now. Right. No, I know. Obviously, this looks better. Right. But what's that doing for you? It's just right. making you constantly dependent yeah. on somebody, yeah. on the government, and they want us to feel that victim status. So yeah. we continually go back to them, and they use COVID to push a new victim yeah. status. Yep. And that's why this article here, this last article I'm going to talk about, is the one I brought up to Matt that talked about this whole victimhood trait is what those are the people that flock towards those uh, COVID regulations and stuff. Yeah, right. And towards the the bailout money and all mm-hmm. that stuff because it's like, well, obviously this dramatic uh, incident happened yeah. and bad shit's happening and I'm afraid for my life and bad – like. The world's not going to get better unless we follow X, Y, or Z. Yeah, and so I'm gonna I'm gonna read a little bit about this because we barely scratched anything about it uh, with Matt. So I I really wanted to hit on this one because I I thought it was interested interesting how it tied mm-hmm. both conversations I want to talk about being like the hyper victimized society and then the mass hysteria surrounding COVID nineteen and it was just interesting I found an article that tied those two together. Yeah, really. So let me pull this one up. This is from SciPost.com or .org. SciPost.org. It says, Trait victimhood and mental rigidity are linked to heightened fear of COVID-19 and greater adherence to safety measures. It says, According to new research, the fear and uncertainty characterizing the coronavirus pandemic may lead certain personalities to be more likely to follow safety guidelines. Do you think that could be exploited? A little bit, yeah. And when you, as we seem to think, 
you have a government that's pushing people more towards a victim mentality, mm-hmm. then you can push these certain guidelines, restrictions, or whatever, and mm-hmm. they're going to be more prone to those. Those types of people are going to, going to be more prone to to grab onto that. Mm-hmm. And then you got people that have been kind of fighting against that whole narrative and people like us that feel like dude you can work out of whatever you want to if you if right. you I mean your life is in your own hands. Right. Those types of people that have been pushing against that whole mindset for years are the ones that look at these guidelines and are like, what the fuck are you talking about? All right. Yeah. Yeah. It says the study pu- published in Frontiers and Psychology found that the tendency to feel like a victim and an inclination towards mental rigidity were both associated with greater adherence to safety measures. The literature has long demonstrated the influence of personality on health-related behaviors. In context of a global pandemic whose outcome depends on the cooperative behavior of citizens, understanding those personality factors is important. This is all. This is coming at it from a positive side, it seems right. like. It okay. seems like it's the opposite of what we're talking about. It's like, well, we want these people... Right. To do what they're supposed to, so we studied the psychology, and these just wait till the government gets this study. They're like, "Oh, the victim personality types," and then the other side of that was what was the mental rigidity, right? Like yeah. I said, the people that are so one-sided and stuck to their one side. What do you think the news does to people? The polarizing oh, news, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, all that's doing is creating mental rigidity. Yep. Yeah. And so then we can convince people to do what we want. Mm -hmm. As COVID-19 spread worldwide, everyone, researchers, lay people, people of God, conspiracy theorists, tried to make sense of the situation and give give their two cents about what should be done and how should people be prompted to obey health guidelines. As social scientists, we wondered what the part of people's personality and perceptions in determining their COVID-related behaviors, uh, increased cleanliness following health guidelines, was said study author Yasi Maravi, the vice dean of Adelson School of Entrepreneurship at the Interdisciplinary Center Herzliya and director of the <laughs> Innovation and Entrepreneurship Lab. Wow, no, that's, that's quite the mouthful. title. That is quite the accolades. I want to see that business card. <laughs> it says, Maravi and his team were interested in exploring how fear and uncertainty can motivate certain health-related behaviors. They propose two psychological traits that are linked to heightened COVID-19 fear that might promote adherence to related safety measures, victimhood and mental rigidity. Uh, The researcher further speculated that self-efficacy moderates moderates the impact of these traits. So people with greater self-efficacy or people that feel like they can get shit done on their own Mm. will be more likely to respond to their fears by adhering to safety measures. So People that's, with greater self-efficacy? That doesn't make sense. Let's see what this says. Okay. Maybe I got that wrong. But it says, to explore this, a questionnaire was distributed among 354 Israelis on March 22nd and 23rd in 2020. A few days later, after Israel introduced emergency measures in response to the coronavirus, uh, the study participants responded to two measures assessing their adherence to safety regulations. Respondents also completed a scale assessing, they, so they completed like a survey, assessing their victimhood, a personality trait that refers to the tendency to perceive oneself as a victim across a variety of situations. 
Participants further completed a measure of mental rigidity, a cognitive style defined by a low tolerance for uncertainty and preferred for simplified, one-sided information. Sounds a little bit like what Matt was talking about with, like, the one single piece of data that we're yeah. going off of to make all our claims or yeah. to to base our opinions off of mm-hmm. and our responses off of mm-hmm. just just that one-sided information. Participants additionally completed a measure of global self-efficacy and COVID-19 fear. Fear of COVID-19 was assessed with five questions including I am very worried about being infected or infecting others that are close to me and I'm afraid of corona disease. The results showed that both mental rigidity and victimhood were related to greater adherence to safety measures. However, when COVID-19 fear and its interaction with global self-efficacy were included in the model, these effects were no longer significant. This suggests that the mental rigidity and trait victimhood were associated with greater adherence to guidelines through their association with heightened fear of COVID-19. Furthermore, participants' level of self-efficacy played a role. This is what I wanted to hear what they had to say. Mm -hmm. For respondents who are low in self-efficacy, fear of the coronavirus was linked to improved adherence to safety measures. For those high in self-efficacy, fear of COVID-19 still predicted adherence to guidelines, but the effect size was substantially reduced. Okay. So the people who are are higher in self-efficacy... Right. They, uh, they, a lot of them still adhere. It didn't affect it that much, but it was, it was lower. It affected somewhat. Um, it says, as the author explains, global self-efficacy includes a person's perception of how capable they are of handling a stressful or uncertain situation, like a pandemic. Right. So if they have a higher efficacy, thinking that they have a higher chance of being able to handle these situations then mm-hmm. obviously then they're going to be like well i don't need no freaking mask i don't right. need no freaking vaccine right. that, yeah. that kind of mentality bring on corona exactly <laughs> it follows that a person's level of self-efficacy would impact how strongly their fear of the pandemic influences their adherence to related guidelines and you see that in all kinds of i don't know like horrific incidences we saw mm. it with the the storm the Draco that right. passed through here you saw all like certain people on facebook that were like i don't know what i'm gonna do i've been without power for for six days yeah and if it doesn't come back on soon i'm gonna lose my damn mind it's like yeah what can you not like yeah i mean this is like pretty minor yeah and that those same people are the ones that lock themselves in their house for a right. freaking year yeah same yeah. person that i'm referring to also, never left his house for almost a fucking year. Yeah, that's crazy. And so, so the study seems pretty legitimate. Yeah, not just in the pandemic, but also in like other right horrible situations or or catastrophes yeah. or whatever. These are the people that low self-efficacy, the people mm-hmm. that don't feel like they can handle yeah. themselves. Interesting. Or take take on shit on their own, and those are also mm-hmm. the people that play the victim or have not necessarily play the victim. Right, but feel that victim, right, victimhood like, status, like they can't take care of things on their own. Yeah, so because they need to listen to what people are telling them. Yeah, because um, things are stacked against them. Yeah. I mean, it, they've been set up to fail all this time. Right. Obviously, they're going to fail on their own during right. a pandemic or a, a, a land hurricane or right. something like that. <laughs> right. So they're going to have the people that are put in this victimhood mentality where they have to rely on the government, or the people that are going to rely on the government mm-hmm. for their own. Uh, 
health safety mm-hmm. when it comes to a pandemic. So obviously, yeah. uh, they've taken care of me. They've had to take care of me this far. So right. they're going to have to. I'm going. They're the ones that know what I need to do yeah. in this health situation. I- interestingly enough, I-, I feel like by by taking this this mentality that we're talking about mm-hmm. and the way they've pushed it with the pandemic. <clears throat> It didn't affect some groups that they thought that it would, because we talked about how you had large groups of like African American men and, and Latino men mm-hmm. um, not um, adhering to rules, not getting the vaccine, right? And I feel like because a lot of that is because a lot of those those cultures are, are more community based, right? So they they kind of go within the community for support and um, to to kind of get things done together. Whereas you had like a large group of say boomers sure. who you know pay attention to the news all the time that are older and feel like they're more susceptible really buckling down and wanting to follow the the guidelines well, it's almost like back to that same scenario where the the media backfires on itself if you've told a minority group that society is stacked against you yeah. and the government has been stacked against you and um the police force has been right. stacked against you why the fuck would you trust right, that, exactly. those people with yes. your your health? Yeah, and, yeah. Now you're saying you, you got to follow the science, and where people don't trust the science because yeah. it's it's coming from the wrong side. Yeah, it's coming from the government that you've taught us was built on racism or or stacked against you yeah. for all this time. You saw it with uh, like African Americans are like, well, we've been we like have a past of. Yeah. Me, uh, medical experiments on us, yes, and I'm sure that gets passed down as a form of, hey, we're going to victimize you right. because of, we're going to make you feel like you're a victim because you're. I'm sure the media has perpetuated a lot of that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And so now when it c- turns around, and it's like, hey, you need to listen to us. Mm-hmm. It just backfired on them. It's like, why the fuck would I? Uh, you, right. you told me six months ago that Not to. <laughs> yeah, that um. They were medically experimenting on us. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so it's interesting, the dynamic there. It really is. And I, I'd like to dig more into that. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't get, didn't know exactly how deep to dig into what, because like I said, I didn't know where that conversation right. with him was going to go. But I knew I wanted to talk about the insanity. And I, I forgot to mention, the, you know, the, the pandemic insanity about the woman who tried to lock her kid, her 13-year-old, oh, in the that. trunk yes. of a car because yeah. he tested positive for COVID-19. <laughs> yeah. What? In Texas, no less, right? Yeah. What fucking sense? You you drove the kid to a testing site. Yeah. He tested positive, so you're like, oh, we got to isolate. Get, get in the <laughs> get fucking in the trunk. trunk. <laughs> you're not riding with me. That's the level of <laughs> insanity yeah. that we've reached at yeah. this point. Yeah, but but it, it it goes with the fact that people have you know they, I think there's been a number of studies that if there's ever like some kind of EMP pulse or whatever that that takes out like technology that like ninety percent of the people will die. I agree with that. Yes, because you look at the people with low self efficacy that yeah. don't think that they can survive a minor pandemic yeah. like this or a I mean that land hurricane was bad. It was. Don't bad. get me wrong, but yeah. the power was back on. The water was back on in what days? Uh, we never lost water. Okay, so we never lost water. Power was back on somewhere between two days to what, roughly two uh, weeks, twelve days. I was going to say ours was twelve days. Yeah. So yes, but, that that's very inconvenient. Yeah, but it was fine. I but mean, imagine being like, <laughs> freaking, uh, 
Haiti or whatever, right. where an oh earthquake took out their their yeah. power for years. Yeah. Their entire power grid got taken yeah. out. Yeah. You think these people would survive something where the entire power grid gets taken out when they're bitching that after 10 days about on a cell phone, no less, <laughs> yeah, on right. Facebook, no less, about how bad it is that their power's been out. Right. And there's somebody across town where you could probably go and take a shower at their house if you wanted. Right. Or a YMCA or something like yeah. that that's got power restored. Or go out of town, up north, what, 20 minutes and find a town that didn't yeah. get hit. That, yeah. These, they've been <laughs> mentally brainwashed to think that they can't, we can't handle ourselves anymore. Yeah. And that's, I mean, you can hold so much power over somebody that doesn't think that they can take care of themselves anymore. Absolutely. And this is perpetuated in the media, the government, everyone yeah. trying to tell you, you need us, you yeah. need people to govern your lives for you because you can't do it on your own. Yeah. And uh, that plays into the, the pandemic, that plays into this whole victimization. And I, I think this whole having to be someone, having to be a victim, I think this is just a symptom of what's going on. And it's just... It's it's the least of our worries right now is right. this whole um, uh, Jussie Smollett playing, right. throwing up the, I got a hate crime committed right. against me. That's that's so minor compared to the masses yes. thinking that we're all victims and we can't take care of yeah. ourselves. Yeah. Because when shit right. hits the fan, who are they going to turn to? They're going to turn yeah. to the government that probably their policies probably caused... The, the problem in the it first usually place. usually does. And and that's interesting. You know, I never thought of it that way. Is that, yes, the, everything with the pandemic, the, the forced victimization is is, is the Jesse Mullet's Smollett case on steroids. Yeah. And the, but the study here proves side. it. But it yes. almost seems like they're saying this is this is what we need to get people to adhere to these guidelines is right. more victims. Because it doesn't yeah. say, hey, this is a bad thing or, hey, they're they're blindly following this. It's like we studied psychological traits based on how people respond in a medical crisis right. like COVID-19. So it's almost like they're like, well, what, what do we need to do here? We need yeah. to make people more of this mentality so that we can control them in this mm -hmm. environment over here. Yeah. Scary. scary it is shit. really scary. That's all the time we got for today. That's all I got. Did you got a, Did you have anything else? No, I don't think so. I think we covered it pretty good. I think we did, too. Um, definitely, if you missed that interview with Matt Belinsky, make sure you go back when I post this full episode and listen to the whole interview. Go check out Matt's stuff all over um, with his, his podcast, The Prevailing Narrative. He talks about way more than just the shit that he covered yeah. today. So, um, like I said, he's four or five episodes in. And he mentioned he has a long list of really good interviews coming up. So I'm anxious to hear some of those. Mm. Make sure you check it out. That's The Prevailing Narrative with Matt Belinsky. That's B-I-L-L-I-N-S-K-Y, I think. I, I have it written one written L, I think. B-I-L-I-N-S-K-Y. Matt Belinsky. Yes. Make sure you check that out. Uh, share the shit all over Facebook. This was a conversation, like, Completely different than what we normally have. I mean, yeah. yes, we did talk about COVID a bit, yeah. but from a completely different angle right. than we usually hit this shit on. So yeah. it was good. So we're going to be back here same time next week. 
hopefully with some more awesome content because Definitely. that's what we like to do. Absolutely. Um, otherwise, we'll be back for the weekend wrap-up this weekend where we just cover whatever other bullshit's going on in the world. That's so funny. don't miss that. Be back live next next Monday night, 7 Central Time, as always. Share the shit all over the place. Share it with your friends and your family. Like, subscribe, all that fun shit because we want to do bigger and better things. Absolutely. We want to reach more and more people. And the only way we can do that is with your help. You guys are our biggest sponsors by you sharing this around, you just listening to us. So thank you for that. Uh, thanks for tuning in. Have a great rest of your week. We'll catch you next time. Peace. Goodbye. The Break the Bell podcast is brought to you by you. So pat yourself on the back because without you, we would be talking to ourselves. A special thanks to our Patreon members, Justin Zielinski, Remzo Martinez, Stephanie Parker, and T.O. Jacobson. A shout out to our sponsors, Run Your Mouth Coffee, the On The Run Podcast, and Goulash Media. If you'd like to help support us, visit patreon.com slash breakthebell or buy our garbage at breakthebell.bigcartel.com. Get back here next week and let us continue to invade your ear holes. And as always, never stop talking.